Welcome to the Just Culture Podcast. I'm Mary Jane. On this show, we are dedicated to creating a safe and just healthcare system. It's no secret to the public that the healthcare system is in a crisis. Nurses and doctors are being asked to take care of sicker patients than we've ever had before with less resources and hospitals are operating under a critical staffing shortage. Some hospitals don't even have the staff to stay open, let alone be profitable and care for their communities. This needs to stop. On this show, we are going to have the difficult conversations, take a look at where we're at, and also come up with solutions on how to fix this. Where do we go from here? How do we take care of our caregivers? How do we give our patients the best care? Those are the questions that we are interested in answering here each and every week. Hello and welcome to the Just Culture podcast with me, Mary Jane Duquette. So I know I've been teasing this in the past couple episodes, but this week we are diving into more of the episodes that you all love. So I cannot even believe this, but we're almost to episode number 52, which means we have almost been at this for a year. I can't even believe it. Thank you to anyone who's been listening since the day one. Um, Bless your heart for listening to the sound of my voice all of this time. And thank you so much for all of your support to get us here and to keep going. One thing that I've done recently is looked back at the top 10 episodes and all of them, aside from a couple, have been case reviews. And um, I am a huge fan of true crime. So I bring to you our very first true crime episode. This one's a series because it's really big. Um, What I keep getting messages all the time, especially when it first came out, was the Netflix series, The Good Nurse. Um, about a nurse named Charles Cullen who um, ended up actually uh, being convicted of murder um, for uh, plenty of his patients. And uh, I I did watch it. I did watch it. And I felt like there was a lot more to the story. So I didn't want to cover it based off of the Netflix uh, series. I wanted to really do a lot of research. And that's what I've been doing in my spare time for fun. Um, how do I sleep at night doing this stuff? I don't know, but, you know, I really feel like this case brings up so many issues. Everything that we've been talking about, uh, I, you know, I remember watching the Netflix series and just cheering that nurse on. Just the fact that it was a nurse that led to the actual conviction of this guy, like the detectives, you, as you'll see, they didn't even know what they didn't even know. And it took a nurse to be like, oh, you have nothing here, actually. There's so much more. And the hospital was not being truthful with them. And the nurse was the one who really was the advocate for the facts in the case. And that really highlights what I've dedicated my life to doing, right? So that's what I'm we're doing here with this podcast. We're just letting the public know the facts, we're just talking about what's really going on, what we see from behind the scenes, what many would not like us to share. As you'll see in this whole entire episode, it really just highlights a lot of what's going on in nursing, um, a lot of other issues, and we'll dive into them as they come and maybe do an episode at the end, like a synopsis. Of- 
in this case, just a brief introduction of sort of what you're getting yourself into here is um, the culminating moment really was in October of 2003. Uh, Charles Cullen was living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's two teenage sons. He was estranged from his ex-wife and the two children that they had previously. He, um, Cullen, or no, his wife, her name was Adrian, um, ended up leaving him due to fears for her own safety and the safety of her children. And as you'll see, Cullen was quite, um, how do I, like an alcoholic, um, had a lot of mental health and depression issues. And um, to some that really knew him, maybe uh, perhaps sort of somewhat of a loose cannon. And so she ended up leaving him and ended up with full custody of the children. After that, Charles Cullen, as a nurse, had a 16-year career in nursing. Throughout that entire 16 years, he would endure dozens of complaints against him, disciplinary action and citation, four police investigations, two lie detector tests, 20 suicide attempts, and all of this happened across different hospitals over, he would work in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, flip-flopping in between the two, and one state got, you know, uh, a little too close on his tail, he would switch to another, and in each and every one of these hospitals, he was terminated or um, encouraged to resign, I believe are the words that they use, but obviously forced to quit and even given some deals to leave the hospital. My question is, and then, you know, eventually he was, he was caught and convicted and locked up. Spoiler alert, he does go to jail, but how, how on earth, right? So you just hear the synopsis, right? I opened the book, I was reading the book. So there is a book called The Good Nurse gives a lot more information than the Netflix series does. And then of course there's newspaper clippings from around the time that it happened. And there's a lot of facts gathered there as well. It's where I've gotten all my information so far, but the whole entire time I'm reading this and it's just in my mind, like, how is he able to keep moving? How is he able to keep going on? How is nobody stopping him? And it's so frustrating just to watch. I mean, had any one of these hospitals really taken the time to do their due diligence rather than just rid themselves of the problem, right? So they saw Colin as a problem and maybe even publicity issue. And so what did they do? They just got rid of the problem. And now it's someone else's problem, right? It's not their problem anymore. It's someone else's problem. But oh my Lord, this man is a murderer. And that means he's all of our problem because he's humanity's problem. So, you know, Lord, what would have happened if he had been stopped after the first hospital, right? What if they had done any more due diligence? I don't even know. And, you know, he started as a nurse in 1984. So did they even have the technologies that they have today? Could they have even caught him way back then? I I don't know, honestly. Um, I became a nurse. I worked in the healthcare field only in recent, um, you know, I've been in the healthcare field. We started with paper charts and I watched the birth of electronic health records happen. So I you know, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. There was no way to, there were no audit trails, right? Different things like that. So some things could go under the radar. I do believe in the earliest hospitals, but 
man, if that was today, people have been fired. I've heard people talking from disciplinary action from the Board of Nursing so much, um, you know, for even the littlest things, right? So having a true healthy grief reaction, right, caught the Board of Nursing said they had to have full neuropsych evals. And here is a nurse who is having multiple admissions for depression and suicide attempts and nothing is happening to this nurse. All of that really bothered me. And that is why I wanted to dig deep into this and do a lot of research and really come up with what I think are some answers. Um, So I really want to start this conversation with who is Charles Cullen, right? So who is this person? Sometimes when, I, uh, when I'm when i watching true crime shows or reading or uh, listening to podcasts, I really like the ones that really dive into who is the person, you know, who's behind the mask, right? Like I grew up watching Scooby-Doo, right? You, know, you pull off the mask. Who is there? So Charles Cullen was born February 22nd of 1960 in West Orange, New Jersey, He was actually a late-in-life surprise to his parents. They had seven children prior to him. He's the youngest of eight. He was raised in an Irish Catholic family in New Jersey. His parents were working class. Um, You know, Irish Catholic families back then, they they were quite large, so eight children. I mean, my grandmother had eight. Um, Her sister had 12. I know of some who have had 16. Like, they, they were just... They were just having all the babies, and he was the youngest of all of them. Uh, Cullen's father died when he was young, and so his mom raised the children as a single mom, which has its challenges all in and of itself. And Cullen, in interviews with the, um, I got this from the book, really, he, um, he actually described his early home life as a dark and unhappy place. He, you know, being the youngest and a late in life surprise, a lot of his older, older siblings were adults by then. And he had some brothers who were addicted to drugs. And I know we have a lot nowadays with the opiate pandemic and you see um, a lot of people suffering with addiction and I know many of us have been touched by that in one way or another in our lives even just as nurses taking care of patients and seeing the wrath of this um, drug addiction and it really it really it's not just the person that is addicted that's affected it really is a disease of the whole family and it really has a profound effect on everybody involved and so it would be no surprise that his brothers being addicted to drugs in many different ways would have affected his life, especially being so young and growing up and watching that. He also had sisters who were adults that um, were living, you know, drifting between living at home, not at home, um, kind of a little unstable figuring their lives out um, as well. And he recalls, you know, his sister bringing home, he called them strange and rough men, um, and they would come around all hours of the night. Um, I think the book kind of implies it's like a booty call type of situation, uh, but sounds more like they were their, you know, boyfriends, and they were probably not very nice men um, and didn't treat people very well. Probably didn't treat Colin very well, I'm assuming, since he was you know, the little kid in the situation. And 
they, you know, bothered Cullen enough that in interviews with his estranged wife, Adrian, um, she said that Cullen po- would brag to her that he once poisoned one of his sister's, uh, pregnant sister's boyfriends. Um, he, he poisoned him with lighter fluid um, because he didn't like him. So I don't know, did this person hurt him, hurt his sister? Um, there's not a lot of detail, but just the fact that violence and this kind of stuff and this behavior really happened early on in his childhood. He actually would have his first suicide attempt at a young age as well. Um, I don't want to quote the exact age for his first suicide attempt because I've seen different article, newspaper clippings, write-ups about this, and it's been different ages, so I don't want to give you the wrong one, but it was at a pretty young age that he, his mental illness, his mental struggles and issues with um, suicide really, really started at a young age. He later went into the Navy, um, but that didn't go very well for him. It wasn't, um, it wasn't for him. Um, He just, he got out of that. And, um, later in his teens, his mom, his mom would die. Ironically, she passed at the mountainside hospital, which is where Colin would later go back to nursing school. Um, Colin recalls this time as being really traumatic for him. You know, the, um, the staff at the hospital weren't exactly truthful with him about his mother's death. Um, he recalls that they were sort of telling him half truths and, you know, and later on reflecting that, you know, even they couldn't take his pain away, right? He was, he was in so much pain. And he did mention that um, later on in interviews about hospitals where he worked and people's pain really um, seemed to bother him. But I don't know if it played that big of a role, but it, you know, he definitely attributes, it was never implicitly said anywhere, but I'm wondering if he blamed healthcare, right, for his mother's death, being the, um, not being truthful about his mother's death and sort of dancing around the issue that, you know, your mom has passed and then him being in pain and, you know, in the book gives a really, really detailed description that he, he gives about this, um, incident and, um, you know, it's, it is really sad, um, it is really sad, but I don't know. That's just my own reflection and kind of the, the sense that I got there. But, um, yeah, later on, um, Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing is where he would end up going to nursing school. So full circle um, through his mother's um, passing there and then him birthing his nursing career there as well. So already, right, just taking aside from the story. So as I'm, you know, getting this far into research and as I'm thinking about this, Cullen already, you know, has a history of depression. He's got a history of alcoholism already. He's already started to drink and have a problem with it. He would eventually before uh, nursing school, you know, have it quote under, under control a little bit more, but, um, you know, they're, one of the conditions of having a nursing license is that you are of sound mind to be able to even have a nursing license to practice as a nurse, right? You, they, they do look at your mental stability and that's why 
you hear of nurses who have anxiety and the board finds out and they have to have a neuropsych exam just to make sure that they're fit to practice. I mean, which is like absolutely insane these days, right? What nurse worked through COVID who doesn't have anxiety or depression or some sort of something, even a touch of PTSD from everything we saw and went through? I mean, there are nurses who've worked their whole entire career and haven't seen as much death and suffering as some of us have, right? But um, I just feel, I just feel like that's the first red flag, right? He got, he was able to enter nursing school and he was able to sit for his boards and get a nursing license despite have, you know, unstable suicide attempts, depression, alcoholism. Um, they were like, yeah, let's roll. Let's get you into nursing school. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, 1984, honestly, that was the year I was born. So do I know what nursing looked like back then? Absolutely not. And I would never try to pretend that I do. I do know that nurses would go to a uh, certificate school. I know a lot of nurses who didn't even get like an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. It was a, it was a certificate, kind of like a training program. And then as the profession progressed and grew over the years and as, the nursing role changed, the training and the requirements have changed. And so that might be part of it. But that is definitely something that really makes me think and take a step back to say, wow, so was he actually a good candidate to become a nurse to begin with, right, with his mental health struggles? Um, You know, I think part of it is he was he was very cunning and, you know, work hard and was willing to do things um, that other people weren't. And he was a male going into a primarily female role. And that has something to do with it as well, I do believe. Um, So yeah, that's just my quick aside to sense there. But um, so Cullen would eventually go to nursing school. He ended up working odd jobs on the side to pay for it. He did have a hard time keeping a job. He would go from place to place. He ended up getting fired um, or quit several of them. He would often butt heads with the management quite a bit, actually. One of the places that Cullen worked during nursing school towards the end of it was at a restaurant called West Orange Roy's. And he would actually meet a woman by the name of Adrian here at this job. And he would stay there until he graduated nursing school and he would quit this job to get his first job as a nurse. And this job really helped him um, pay for nursing school. And I think Adrian had a lot to do with him staying there. They fell in love and their relationship progressed. And actually one week after Colin graduated nursing school, um, they were married And um, they, ironically, he had them cut their honeymoon short so he could come back early to start his first job as a nurse. So Colin was really actually a great nursing student. He was, you know, worked really hard. Everybody loved him. He was celebrated as, you know, a male nurse in a primarily female situation, they sort of really looked up to him and 
so much so they made him the president of his class, even though I don't think he really wanted that kind of role, but he accepted it and went along with it, despite the fact that he would have rather probably just blended in um, to the scenery, right? And, you know, all things said, when he graduated from nursing school in March of 1984, if you had looked at the way his schooling went and how successful he was in nursing school, you would have no idea what was to come. He looked like a nurse eager to get working, ready to work really hard and really start to make a difference and get out there. Had a lot of promise, right? Um, as a male nurse, I think I remember, I remember talking to this one nurse and she's a nurse and her husband's a nurse. And there's a difference between how they're received. And she, I've seen this myself and she really put it, you know, really hit the nail on the head with this description in that male nurses are automatically groomed for management, right? They're, would a male nurse ever want to just stay at the bedside and take care of people? For whatever reason, the culture is that maybe they wouldn't. Whether, you know, not everybody's born to be a leader. We've talked about that, right? And so, but male nurses are almost expected to take that role, which is kind of what happened to Colin in nursing school, right? Being the president of a class. They were automatically like, you are the male, you are the leader. Um, and, you know, he would have been just as happy to take care of patients and be at the bedside, right? Then he can get his real work done is, is what it comes down to later on. But um, yeah, but as he graduated, one would have no idea. He, you know, was able to charm people. He did have quirks. Many people will say, oh yeah, looking back, he, you know, did XYZ, which was really strange. But for the most part, everybody really, really liked him. Um, he would later have many different um, certifications and abbreviations after his name um, and the end of it, he was Charles Cohen, GED, which I'm guessing is his general education diploma, um, BSN, which is a bachelor's in science of nursing, ACLS, um, which is acute care life support. So this is uh, required if you want to work in the intensive care unit to be able to do that really high intense, you know, it's not just compressions and keep them alive until, the ACLS providers come, you are the ACLS provider showing up, right? And then he also was certified in intra-balloon pumps and critical care nursing. So those have to do with cardiac, well, the intra-balloon pump has to do with cardiac nursing and critical care um, is ICU nursing where he spent most of his career. So all intents and purposes from 20,000 feet, he looks like a really decorated, successful nurse, right? But what's happening, right? It's kind of like a mirage. When you get up close, what is really happening? And I think that's when you dive into, look really closely at all of the happenings inside of each job that he has, right? So he cut his hat honeymoon short to start his first job at St. Barnabas Medical Center, um, he worked on the burn intensive care unit in Livingston, New Jersey. So a burn unit. Burns are tough. Burn and soft tissue are really tough. Uh, the hospital I worked at 
combines burn and soft tissue, so this can be wound infections and burns. Um, they're both treated different, um, but it's the same specialty of providers that treat them. And oh, it's just so tough, so, so tough. Burns are painful, 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 painful. It's heartbreaking to take care of people in that much pain, no matter what you do, no matter the interventions you give them. They're always going to be in some sort of level of pain and it's, you know, a burn is an accident, right? So it's never like, oh yeah, we definitely, you know, oh, it's their fault or, you know, whatever. Um, it's not a chronic condition that did this. So it's, it's painful and it's hard work. Um, and to work in the intensive care unit, these are the sickest of the sick, right? And these are the more, most intense burns, fresh burns, um, and in this particular hospital, they didn't separate kids or adults, so he would be taking care of people of all ages um, with burns specifically who are suffering. And he did talk a lot about the suffering and how that did bother him. Um, there's a lot that goes into burn care, right? So there's taking care of the burns and healing those wounds. And also, you know, the doctors have to do a lot of procedures. They undergo tons of surgeries to put grafts to help the wounds heal. And then there's procedures to keep the wounds from becoming stiff because they're, um, you know, the scar tissue can, can be stiff and decrease mobility. And then you have the issue of swelling and sometimes they have to have procedures to open up areas to keep the swelling from happening. There's a lot that goes into it, and it's actually really critical and really important to get great care in these situations, not only because a wound is a wound and it can become infected, but also depending on how much of your body is affected, you know, your, bo your, your body is 90-something percent water, right? 97% water, essentially, and most, most textbooks will tell you that. Some will tell you a little bit different, but we're mostly water. And our skin holds in our water. And so when our skin is burned and there's an, you know, there's the integrity of it is compromised, it's, you leak, you lose a lot of fluids. You Some of it evaporates into the air. Some of it leaks out in the form of drainage, but you have a really hard time with fluid balance. And so this is really critical. These are really, really sick patients. And Back then, in 1984, pain medicine wasn't what it was. I believe they had morphine and maybe some other off-the-cuff medications, but not as much as they have now, and certainly not what we have these days now that we're trying to get away from opiates altogether, right? We have multiple different modalities of pain, and we're really exploring things like distraction and music and lots of other amazing things that we can do for pain, but uh, pain wasn't as well researched back then as it is today. So patients, pain was actually, pain is difficult today to treat. Pain was even more difficult then to treat. And, you know, working in that environment, um, it could take its toll on someone. I don't think that this is somewhere you would find nurses who have been working there for their whole entire careers, right? I don't think you could do more than a few years in this type of environment. But meanwhile, Colin's working at this hospital. He's getting trained. He's appearing to be successful there. People are beginning to like him. He's taking care of patients. Everything seems to be going well at this point. 
but his home life starts to deteriorate. So Adrian, which is his wife, noticed that he began to distance himself. He started to hang out in his basement more, kind of had like a like a man cave situation going down there. And what he was really doing down there was drinking. He, he was drinking again and um, drinking a lot. Um, Adrian and Colin would end up having children. And Adrian's concerns would grow more and more um, every day as his behavior became more and more bizarre. And she got concerns for her children's safety. Um, Adrian talks about they had they already had a dog, a small, I think it was a York Terrier or something like that. And she got a new they got a new puppy. And Colin seemed to enjoy the puppy. Uh, they wanted a puppy so that their first dog had a companion. And you know, wasn't lonely while, you know, Adrian would go to work in the daytime. Colin would sleep because he worked nights. He always worked overnights. So the dog would spend a lot of time during the day alone while Colin was asleep and she was at work. So she got, they got a puppy. He seemed to like it. And then they had their first daughter. And one day Adrian came home from work and found that the puppy was missing. Colin didn't seemed to be concerned at all that the puppy was missing. He didn't call her to tell her that, you know, what would be a normal reaction if you lost your dog, right? My husband would call me first. He'd be like, the dog is missing. I'm looking for it. I don't know what to do. He would probably be in a panic as I would if I was the one home and the dog was missing. He didn't do any of that. He just was cool and calm and collected. She actually said he he had no, he didn't show anything or any kind of emotion or reaction to the situation at all. And when she was off looking for the puppy to find out, you know, look the neighborhood and see where it is, he didn't even help. So that was a red flag to her. She kind of thought that he had something to do with it. I know that the book mentions that the neighbors would complain about the dog barking all day long while he was asleep. And of course, Colin would say things like, well, I'm sleeping. You know, it's, it's a puppy. It's barking. But when the puppy went missing, Adrian asked him what was like what happened and his story was really alarming for her he told her that he had gone for a walk while their infant daughter was sleeping and when he came back the puppy was missing so in that one sentence he had admitted that he left the daughter home alone by herself she was an infant um not fit to be home alone by herself ever, even if she was sleeping. And also he admitted that he left the front door open, which is how the dog escaped. So he left his front door open and went for a walk, leaving his infant daughter home all alone. So she really thought that he had something to do with the puppy, but that also brought up concerns with his daughter sleeping. And later on in conversations and in the book, it really brings this up that she actually had some suspicions that he was drugging their daughter with like some Benadryl or sleeping medication because he insinuated in one time argument that they had that he knew he, he kind of knew his daughter wasn't going to wake up while he was gone type of situation. So he was thinking that so he could sleep. He was giving his daughter some sleeping medications. Um, and then the puppy went missing and kind of the culminating or, you know, the cherry on top for Adrian was when the neighbor came to her house one day, looked crying, hysterical, and apparently their um, their dog, her name was Queenie, 
had gone missing. And they came to Adrian and Charles' house because for some strange reason or not, the dog went would always wander off from their yard and go missing. And every time they would find the dog inside of Colin's, the Colin's yard. And this day they found the dog, you know, in an alley and it, they took it to the vet and it was deceased, but the vet had said the dog had been poisoned. Now, did anybody have proof that it was Charles? No, but the neighbor came to their house because that's where the dog always went to so they were asking questions like do you know anything about this you know who knows did they have any freeze laying around did they have anything in the home around it that maybe had some something that could poison poison the animal the book doesn't say what the animal was poisoned with but adrian you know putting two and two together where colin had admitted to poisoning his um, with lighter fluid, his sister's boyfriend when he was younger, their dog going missing, him having no reaction to it, and then this dog going missing who kept wandering in their yard. She really suspected that Colin was behind all of it. And she began talking to her family, telling them that she thinks something's wrong. She even went down to the basement and found Colin down there. And the look in his eyes really, really scared her. She said he he had a cool blankness in his eyes, and he was sort of devoid of any any feelings. Uh, she describes his eyes as if they were both focused on two separate locations, as if two separate beings were looking. Like, she said that he, the look just disturbed him. There was something wrong with him. And she would end up leaving, and she would end up getting full custody of the children, getting a divorce and a restraining order and that was kind of how their story ended um which is you know sort of unfortunate but um probably for the best for them right and you know that starts the violence right and sort of this quirky behavior the strangeness that is Colin um and while all of this is happening in February, or actually on February 11th of 1991, a nurse by the name of Pam Allen, um, she was working in the pharmacy and she had gone to the burn unit and found some IV bags that were out and they looked like they were overfilled and they were leaking. So she took them off the floor, of course, because, you know, there's something wrong with the bags and they brought them back to the pharmacy for analysis. Now, so IV bags, they come in, they're these like clear plastic bags with fluid in it. It just looks like a clear fluid in most situations. Some situations, it's not a clear liquid, um, but the, and the bags are labeled with what is in them. And in this instance, you know, so you have these bags and then there are two ports on the bottom. One is sort of the in port where pharmacy mixes medication. So they'll put, there's usually a base solution like a normal saline or something of the, of the like. And then uh, the drug is, is in there and pharmacy mixes up the calculations So they get the concentrations just so, and then they bring these IV bags and stock them on the floor. Well, there's usually always some room in the bag, right? Because you need some space to hold it. You need to be able to hang it. And 
it's a very specific amount that they're putting in these bags. And so this pharmacy nurse would have noticed if it was overfilled, right? If there wasn't that little bit of extra room in there. And she noticed that and then leaking. So none of the bags should be leaking. If it's leaking, we have to throw it away. It means it's been punctured somewhere. There's something wrong with the with the ports. Um, it's an open system now. And so we can't inject that into someone's veins because who knows what we're injecting, right? If there's a hole in it or there's a compromised bacteria could have walked in there. So she took them out and she brought it to the risk manager who was Karen Seden. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. It's S-E-I-D-E-N and told them that she thought someone was tampering with, with these IV bags, right? So there's really no way of describing, you know, she, she couldn't fathom how they had become overfilled and how they had these, you know, holes in them and were leaking and it was several of the bags. So it seemed to be intentional to her. So she reported this to her risk manager and the risk manager started out just great. They did what they should have done and they took the solution in each of the bags and analyzed it and sent different testing to find out what was in there. And what they found were three ingredients, normal saline, heparin, and insulin. So these bags were marked insulin. No, I'm sorry. Scratch that. These bags were marked heparin. So what should have been in the bag is normal saline and heparin. Normal saline would be the uh, base solution, and then heparin would be the drug. And so patients who would get this are patients who are at risk of clotting. So you could have patients who are at risk of having a blood clot for whatever reason. It could be cardiac reason. It could be that they've had a history of blood clot. It could be a circulation issue. But this, if someone's getting IV heparin, this is a high alert medication. There are huge risks, including bleeding and death and lots of other stuff associated with this. Um, so this is a real high alert situation that these particular bags were tampered with. And the fact that they had insulin in them is huge red flag because number one, you will never mix a solution and a drug and then another drug, right? You, especially insulin and heparin are both high alert medications and come with huge risks. Those would never be given together. In fact, uh, policy nowadays is that you can't even, you can't even piggyback anything or give anything in the same line as like heparin or insulin. They have, they're high alert, they're on their own, um, just so that you can't mess with the solutions and different things like that. So that reason we would never mix those drugs. And then also you have to be really careful when you're mixing IVs and combining things because some drugs can have an interaction among themselves and they can um, even crystallize or um, cause particles, which can do damage in and of itself within someone's body. So you have to be very careful. You have to know what you're mixing. And certainly a pharmacy would never mix heparin and insulin. So that just further um, confirmed the theory that somebody was messing with these drugs, um, you know. And so what would happen if somebody got insulin that shouldn't, right? They're, they would have insulin lowers your blood sugar. So if somebody had gotten one of these bags, they would have had low blood sugar and maybe no one was even monitoring their blood sugar because maybe they weren't diabetic or maybe they didn't have orders. Um, usually in the ICU, you're checking blood sugars because uh, patients aren't eating and things like that. But what if they weren't checking them soon enough, right? You can have someone crash in just an hour um, if you're giving them enough insulin. So 
very, very, very dangerous. Um, we do give IV insulin. Um, some of it is injected in the abdomen or, or sub-Q tissue, but we do give IV insulin for really severe diabetic reactions, um, namely like diabetic ketone acidosis or um, acidosis. And so it is a life-saving drug when it is needed, but when it is not needed, it could be fatal. And um, so they were thinking, thank goodness we found this. And how on earth could this have happened? Um, with that, folks, we're getting uh, pretty... Um, I'm going to end episode um, one of the series. There's, there's going to be a lot of information to cover. Um, this might be a part two or three. Uh, we'll continue with part two next week. If you enjoyed this episode, if this is... Um, please, you know, give me you know, send me an email, um, share this with your friends, go ahead and rate and review this podcast so that we, I take the feedback, um, really seriously. And I really want to give you guys more content that you love. So definitely share your thoughts and, um, we'll see you next week. Hey there. This is the part of the podcast where I get to make my lawyer smile and I get to tell you that the purpose of this podcast is for educational purposes only. I am not a lawyer and therefore not your lawyer or giving you any kind of legal advice, as well as I am a nurse, but I am not your nurse. And so I am not giving you any medical advice either. Take this information as educational and consult your doctor or your legal counsel as you see fit.